Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of Song of Songs. The Old Testament book of Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, as it's more well-known. And turn to chapter 6 and find verse 4. We'll be looking at verse 4 through chapter 7, verse 10 this evening. And uh, with the Word of God open before us, let's go to Him in prayer now. Heavenly Father, we do ask that You would show us Your Son in this, Your Word. Remind us of the great love and compassion and tenderness of our heavenly bridegroom, which he shows so readily, so often, so aboundingly to sinners like us. We ask that you would speak. Lord, we long to hear your voice and to know more of the salvation that's ours in Christ. Show us him in your word, we pray this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've read ahead, this text requires no warning, but I will say at the outset as I prepare to read it, we come to the passage in the Song of Songs that uh, gives us our most explicit expressions of poetic romance. And so as a uh, word of caution, uh, I'll be reading from, directly from the text uh, the, the words that are printed here, and so be aware of that as we go into Scripture. But uh, even Prior to the services, myself and the elders met in the vestry to pray. We asked the Lord to grant maturity to His people, even His youngest people among us, that we might hear God's Word appropriately and think well about what it has to say to us. Song of Songs, chapter 6, verse 4, beginning with Solomon speaking. This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear all of it. You are beautiful as Terza, my love, lovely as Jerusalem awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number, My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsman, the prince. Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath Rabim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel, and your flowering locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. 
Or may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Amen. This ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Well, conflict resolution makes up probably about 50% of what I deal with in marital counseling, and it takes up about 20% of what I explain to young couples in premarital counseling. Now, there are several causes of conflict, and I'll share some of them with you just briefly now. Uh, Some causes of conflict are by themselves not moral issues. They're just the reality of living in a fallen world. We as individuals have differences in values and opinions and goals, and this causes conflict amongst us sometimes. Sometimes conflict is caused by simple miscommunication or misunderstanding. Sometimes it's due to competition over limited resources. In marriage, there are multiple limited resources, finances and time, even energy. You yourself are a limited resource in your marriage. And sometimes conflict is the result of sinful actions and attitudes and desires. And there are also different ways of responding to conflict, and think about where you fall on the spectrum. There are some people who respond to conflict primarily through escape mechanisms. They run from conflict. They try to avoid conflict. They're conflict-averse. They think that conflict only brings pain. Other people respond principally through attack responses to conflict. They raise their voice. They get loud. They get aggressive. They go on the attack. They're verbally and emotionally destructive. Most of us land somewhere on one of those two spectrums. Of course, there's a biblical spectrum in the middle, some of which we'll look at this evening. Some people fluctuate between the two. Perhaps you are, you've been in a relationship with somebody who will feign attack responses in order to chase you away so they can escape. Really, they're an escape response sort of person, but they think the best way to do it is to go on one brief violent attack and then they withdraw And other people appear to be escaping, but what they really do is hitting you where it hurts. And so their escape is actually an attack mechanism. Others appear uh, to do one and, and then the other from time to time, depending on the particular conflict. It's all very complicated, as you can tell, which is why it takes up so much marital counseling and premarital counseling uh, real estate. So much of what we deal with, what I deal with, and and the the elders deal with in counseling is trying to untie what seem to be impossibly tied knots. But our text this evening offers us tremendous insight into how conflict in marriage is to be handled by Christians. It's not exactly a user's guide. Of course, this is still a poem of love, a romantic ancient Near Eastern poem filled with imagery and language that's foreign to us, and most of us don't think about complimenting the thighs of our spouse in the midst of conflict. So it's not quite a user's guide to dealing with conflict. But it does give us some some handrails to lay hold of in the midst of marital difficulties. It's helpful for us to consider in light of the fact that, as we said last week, if you'll remember, marriage is not about finding that one perfect person with whom you'll never disagree. It's about finding that one imperfect person from whom you're willing to ask forgiveness over and over and over again, and to whom you're willing to offer forgiveness over and over and over again. And we need to remember that this passage comes on the heels 
of the Shulamite bride's nightmare about losing her beloved. If you remember from last week, there was some conflict in their marriage which had put distance between them. He comes home at night ready for romance. She closes the door to him and comes up with some uh, fairly lame excuses as to why she can't be bothered to unlock the door. My feet are clean, for example. Never heard that one before. Uh, But we remember learning last week that marital difficulties can make us act a little crazy, can't they? And we see her basically chasing him off and then realizing her mistake and running after him. And so we understand that marital conflict can make us act kind of crazy. But we also saw that repentance and covenant faithfulness, repentance and covenant faithfulness are what lead to restoration in marriage. And here in this passage, on the heels of that uh, renewal, on the heels of the realities of their covenant bonds to one another and the repentance of our Shulamite bride having chased down Solomon and found him in the garden, we see a renewed delight that Solomon and his bride have in one another. And the dialogue of passion is reignited between them. And this text, as I mentioned earlier, perhaps beyond all that we've read so far, is loaded with images of the body, with language of passion and of delight in the physical part of their relationship. But that's not the first thing we see in their resolution, is it? And we'll come back to this in a moment. This evening, I want us to notice four distinct aspects of what we're going to call mature Christian love. It's worth noting that it appears that this couple's been together for a while now. Uh, There's a bit of a development in their relationship. Whereas earlier, it was distant, the marriage had yet to be uh, consummated, they talked in in a little bit more veiled and and discreet language. Now, all of a sudden, the husband is identifying things about his wife. Solomon is saying things about his bride that only someone who spent a lot of time with her would be able to say would be able to identify. So there's a maturing that's happened in the relationship. And mature Christian love does a couple things in the midst of conflict. What does this text tell us then about how mature Christian love faces and handles conflict in marriage? First of all, mature Christian love speaks wisely. Mature Christian love speaks wisely. Mature Christian love speaks comprehensively. Mature Christian love speaks passionately. And then lastly, mature Christian love speaks permanently. Before I go any further, I want to make sure that I'm clear about this. uh, And this is perhaps a risky thing to say. Um, It's quite easy, in a sense, for me to stand here and explain to you, to us, what God's Word says. I don't want you to make the mistaken conclusion that none of this applies to me in my marriage, and these aren't lessons that I haven't first learned in preparing to preach this sermon to you. It was said of one of my theological heroes, Robert Murray McShane, by his biographer, one of his dear friends, Andrew Bonner. He said this of McShane, from the first, he fed others by what he himself was feeding upon. His preaching was in a manner the development of his own soul's experience. It was a giving out of his inward life. He loved to come up from the pastures where the chief shepherd had met him and then lead the flock entrusted to his care to the very spots where he had found nourishment. This is for all of us, my friends. And so I don't want you to think mistakenly as you look at me standing in this pulpit or see me and my wife uh, around the church or around town that we're perfect or we have it all together. 
This is stuff that we're all seeking to grow in together, and God's word matters to each and every one of us. And I want to say that plainly from the outset. Uh, as a person who does a lot of marriage counseling, it can be easy for people to mistakenly conclude that I'm doing it from an ivory tower, that my wife and I are in a position of, uh, of some sense of authority by experience, but rather the authority is from God's word, which speaks to all of us tonight. Mature Christian love speaks wisely. What do we mean when we say that mature Christian love speaks wisely? You'll remember that the Shulamite bride has found Solomon waiting in the garden, right where he should be in covenant faithfulness to his wife. He wasn't out gallivanting. He wasn't at the, at the restaurant or the diner with his friends complaining about his wife's cold shoulder. She locked the door again last night. And he certainly wasn't waiting for her to come crawling back to him in contrition. We don't find Solomon sitting here plotting out his lines. Oh, once she gets here, I'll say this to her. And if she says that, this is what I'm going to nail her with. Rather, we find him patiently, maturely waiting to speak to her in loving wisdom. Notice that the opening seven verses, this is really significant, are absent any mention of her unmentionable parts. The first seven verses... All he deals with is her eyes, her hair, her teeth, her cheeks. That's it. Her facial features. The same sort of things that he dealt with in their courtship is the things that he returns to now in his expression of love. Solomon is trying to affect restoration in their marriage, and he doesn't say, A, this is all your fault, nor does he say, let's get into bed and make up. That's what's going to fix our marital problems. Give me access to that which you refused me earlier, if you remember from back in chapter 5. What wisdom Solomon displays in this conflict. What a mature approach to marital disharmony. To speak words of affection, both of the beauty of his wife and her character. Solomon does not go after the restricted area that she had cut off from him. Rather, he backs out to the 30,000-foot view and says, don't forget, sweetheart, I love all of you. I love all of you, your character, even the things that everyone else can see. He avoids all mention of sex and of her clothed features. Instead, he emphasizes her obvious beauty and her character. He wants her to know that he actually loves her for all the right reasons. And there's a lesson here, isn't there? We live in an age where we sort of casually make jokes about make-up intimacy after an argument, and they simply don't accord with the Bible's view of mature Christian love or conflict resolution in marriage. Here we see the husband simply singing the praises of his wife. He reaffirms his premarital devotion to her. He basically moves way back to the beginning and says, all the things I loved about you back then, I still love about you now. He loves her for who she is. His desire for her, to be sure, is there, but it's in terms offered that make it clear he isn't just about one thing. And he goes back to their wedding vows, in fact. Look at verse 6 with me. When he says um, in verse 6, your, uh, excuse me, verse 7, your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. That's reminiscent of their marriage ceremony where she comes out in a veil. It would have been odd for her at this stage in her life to be wearing a veil. And so for him to make reference to the veil is sort of an allusion to their marriage ceremony. In other words, he's reaffirming his vows to her. He's drawing her attention 
to the promises he made on their wedding day, not their wedding night. If we could say it sort of colloquially, he's telling her, I love you more now than I did on the day we got married. Even in the midst of conflict. And this is important. If we've concluded wrongly that the best thing we can do for our marital health is to re-engage the physical part first, then we've missed something that the Bible makes clear. Now, don't get me wrong, after they make up, after she acknowledges his efforts at restoration, his love poem, and she herself does the same, the language gets pretty physical and pretty intense pretty quickly. There's nothing to suggest that the restoration of intimacy isn't in view or that it isn't important, only that it isn't primary. In this conflict, the restoration of intimacy isn't primary. That their total relationship is restored is what's paramount. That the whole relationship is restored is what Solomon cares most about. And he returns once again to the covenant commitments he made to her on their wedding day. While it's not explicit, she would have been reminded of that wonderful day on which they committed to a lifetime of marriage together, for better or for worse. It's also interesting that he even speaks to her particular concerns in her dream. If you remember in her dream, when she is being uh, chased around uh, by the men of the city, they beat me and bruised me, it says in chapter 5, verse 7, and they took away my veil, those watchmen of the wall. She sort of had a recent nightmare about the fact that she'd been stripped bare by people because of her foolishness and sin, and Solomon even seeks to cover that up in his language of restoration. He puts her back behind the veil, doesn't he? And he restores her. Christian, excuse me, mature Christian love is wise in its approach to conflict. It doesn't jump after one thing, and it certainly doesn't move too quickly. It speaks tenderly and lovingly. Its choice of words and its focus are important, and it's also comprehensive. Mature Christian love speaks comprehensively. I mentioned this a moment ago that he speaks of her character. He doesn't just speak about her physical beauty. It's more than that. Of course, the Song of Songs is often accused of just being an erotic love poem, but there's so much more going on. In verses 4 through 7, he deals almost exclusively with her physical features. Again, in verse 10, he deals a little bit with it, but he tells her how she's lovely, uh, how awesome she is to look at. Her eyes are so intense that her gaze makes him bashful almost in her presence. That's how moved he is by his love for her. Her hair and her teeth and her neck and her, and her cheeks and so forth. But then in verses 8 through 10, he deals almost exclusively with her character. Because there's more to this woman that he loves than just the way she looks. It's a comprehensive restoration of their relationship in mature Christian love. What he says about her is remarkable. He uses language that ought to cause us to think of Proverbs 31 and the description there of that woman of noble character. Let me read it again. He says, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. There's countless women out there. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one. The only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The, this, and this is reminiscent of Proverbs 31. The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and the concubines also, and they praised her. Doesn't that remind you of her children rise up and call her blessed in Proverbs 31? In other words, he's speaking to the sort of godly, holy character that she has inside herself just as much 
as he speaks to the external beauty that he adores about her. He says she's worth more than 140 other women and even countless virgins. Even if all of them be queens and royal wives, she is perfect and she alone is holy to him. Now, some might think that 140 wives sounds pretty cool. There are, of course, in our culture, uh, many who think that this is the way it should be. 140 women waiting for you every day when you come home from work. Queens from different nations that you've married for political reasons, concubines that you've married just for pleasure. But this sort of thinking displays a gross level of immaturity that desires only physical fulfillment and not spiritual or emotional fulfillment, and in reality knows none of them. See, the problem with that sort of thinking is that there's no way to have a deep and meaningful relationship with 140 women, or men, I suppose. Instead, the Bible commends to us a lifetime of one special relationship into which you pour all of yourself, not 140 different relationships into which you're able to pour none of yourself. You see, 140 wives here, uh, 80 queens and, and uh, uh, excuse me, 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number, give the king the opportunity to go from room to room as he pleases. And if things aren't working out over here, he can go to the next room. And if that one doesn't work out and she's giving me the cold shoulder, I can go to the next room. And if this one over here gets into an argument, I'd shut that door forever and go over to the next room. And it's sort of uh, the idea there is that there's no need to remain faithful in the midst of conflict. There's no reason to work hard to make sure the flame of marital passion remains lit. And so Solomon here in his wisdom, in his early wisdom, sees this one woman as the only one out of all the women in the world for him because of the sort of character she has. And I fear that perhaps we are training our young people to adopt a sort of use-it-and-lose-it approach to relationships by promoting a culture of casual dating. We encourage our youth to date around, to try out a bunch of different hats and see which one fits best. Go on a couple dates with that person over there, and if it doesn't work, then you decide that that's not the sort of person you want, and you go on a couple dates over here and try that out. And we're encouraging our youth and teaching them that when conflict arises or disappointment sets in, you simply move on to the next available person. The Bible here, in Solomon's great wisdom, in this, remember what the title of this book is, The Song of All Songs, which is Solomon's, commends to us a lifetime of faithful monogamy to the one person that God has brought into your life for covenant relationship. And in contrast to the cultural norm of the day, 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number, Solomon says, you are the only one for me. How foolish then is it that we are actually actively trying to teach our children to practice what Solomon condemns here as being less than appropriate? less than wise. We're basically saying there are versions without number out there, and there are 60 available, and there are 80 more on top of that, and go around, pick your choice. Date all of them and find out which works best. Rather than finding something special and promoting a biblical uh, concept of courtship and relationship, we're preparing our youth to exit stage left as soon as they aren't pleased with the relationship that they're in. 
Now, I'm not suggesting that all relationships between young people or even young adults need to be especially aimed at marriage now, but there is something about the casual nature with which we approach dating from a secular perspective that certainly does not commend or train monogamy or commitment, does it? Perhaps we ought to learn about dating and courtship and relationships from the Bible more than we do from the world, don't you think? Now, Solomon says in verse 9 that of all her sisters, perhaps these were the ones that mocked her before, she alone is pure to her mother. Isn't that interesting language? My dove, my perfect one, she's the only one. The only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women see her and call her blessed, the queens and concubines, and they also praise her. Young ladies... It is better to be thought well of by your church family than to be praised by all your classmates, all your teammates, all the other girls, and all the good-looking young men in all the world. To be counted as pure and accepted as pure by your mother rather than be accepted by thousands of sisters who have no morals or fear of the Lord. And Solomon looks at this wife of his, and she'd been mocked earlier by her siblings for her appearance. She'd been forced out into the field to do hard labor. And now he's saying, of all of them, she alone is the one for me. She alone is thought of as pure, as holy, as sanctified by her mother. She's the one that waited for me. She's the one that I love. And other young women, when they see it, they too rise up and call her blessed. This speaks about the character of the Shulamite woman the bride of Solomon, and the wisdom of Solomon himself. Even though there was a conflict that appears to rest squarely on her shoulders, he's the one that speaks of her as holy and blessed in the relationship. Solomon's the one that highlights this about her. Don't miss this. Her mother doesn't come to her defense. That's not what we see happening in verse 9. Her mom doesn't show up on the scene and remind Solomon that she's actually my favorite daughter. She herself doesn't stand up on a platform and say, don't forget, I waited for you. I'm pure. I'm alone pure of all my sisters. All the other women know that I'm a great wife. She doesn't toot her own horn, such as it were. She doesn't commend herself to Solomon. She came chasing after Solomon in contrition and repentance. And Solomon, in wisdom and in comprehensive acknowledgement of her total person, he's the one in the midst of conflict who says she is pure. She is holy. She is special for me. He doesn't focus on her mistakes. Rather, he focuses on her true character. How unlike us in conflict, isn't it? Maybe I'm the only one. When we're in conflict, we tend to act like the other person in our relationship has gone totally insane. We talk about them as though they were our enemy, not our lifelong covenant committed spouse. We use absolute terms like you always do this or you never do that. Is that familiar to you? What does Solomon do in the midst of conflict, the conflict that she started back in chapter 5? He says none of that. He uses covenant language. I love you like I did on our wedding day. He uses character language. You are godly and more desirable than all the other women I know. And he uses comprehensive language. You're beautiful to me, and I love your insides as much as your outsides. 
That's how mature Christian love approaches conflict. He doesn't take the opportunity to kick her while she's down. He doesn't speak in absolute terms as though she had ruined their relationship or as though she were now somehow his enemy because of this conflict. He remembers that she's the one that he loves more than anybody in the world. That she's the one to whom he made covenant commitments. That she's the one whose character is what drew her to him, him to her in the first place. And that hasn't been lost in light of a conflict or a disagreement or an argument. Perhaps you need to be reminded about that in your own, life, in your own marriage right now. That just because you may find yourself in the midst of conflict doesn't mean all the things that are true about the other person have suddenly ceased from being true. Rather than plotting his next attack, he is busy remembering all his love for her. Isn't that instructive to us in conflict? And he doesn't hold back from sharing it with her. This is how we should approach conflict in mature Christian love. Speak loving words, compassionate words, comprehensive words, wise words, and in fact, passionate words to our loved one. Look again with me at verses 11 through chapter 7, verse 9. I won't reread all of it. She herself acknowledges the, the effort that he's putting into uh, the restoration of the relationship. She herself says that I went to see uh, how our relationship was doing. And uh, my de- before I was aware, it says, my desire set me among the chariot of my kinsman, a prince. I've been restored into the place of my love, the one to whom I've committed myself. And then he begins to speak in these very explicit terms about his great love for all of her person. And the language is very passionate. He moves from her feet all the way back up to her head. Rather than going from the crown of her head down to her neck, as he was doing before, in sort of modest language, he goes from her feet all the way back up to the top. And he speaks of things, don't miss this, in, this is mature Christian love here, he speaks of things that only a husband has access to. And he's reminding her even in this passionate discourse of the fact that he appreciates and enjoys all that she has to offer for him. Here we have all the comments about the covered up parts of the Shulamite. He holds nothing back. He wants her to know that his desire for her, while physical and legitimate, is first based on her character, but that he still really does desire her, doesn't he? I think the point is this, and, and bear with me as we, as we try to explain this and understand this together. He uses very explicit language about all sorts of parts of his wife that he adores and delights in and loves. The point, however, is not that she's physically attractive, which she very well may be. And the point is not that he is physically attracted to her, which he certainly appears to be. Instead, I think the point is that he is satisfied in her and her alone. That she is all he wants, and all he wants is her. That's why he said back in chapter 6, verse 7, there's all these other women, verse 8, excuse me, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgin without number, but my dove, my perfect one, is the only one for me. It's from that starting point that he goes in to describe her physical beauty, not the other way around. He doesn't say, I love your ankles, I love your thighs, I love your belly, I love your breasts, therefore you're the only one for me. He says, I find all my satisfaction in you. 
And because of that, all of your parts fill me up with joy. Do you see the difference? There's a world of difference between those two things. And young men, be instructed in this. There is a world of difference between being delighted in and satisfied in the character of the one God has given you and therefore being filled up in all of her features versus desiring a bunch of features and hoping that you'll find character to match your lusts. And in the midst of conflict, he wants her to remember that she is satisfying to him. A beautiful or handsome spouse may be very attractive. You may find someone who is maximally attractive, such that you desire them greatly with all of your physical self. But that doesn't mean you can find any satisfaction in them. Watch the news. Read the magazines. The most beautiful people in all the world are getting divorced. The most attractive stars in Hollywood that live in L.A. or musicians in Nashville or wherever else they live, they're getting divorced. Even the best-looking ones. Why is that? It's because marital faithfulness is not about physical attraction. Having a nice belly button and round thighs is not what keeps people together in a lifelong monogamous relationship. And that's not what Solomon is commending to us. Rather, satisfaction that's found in covenant commitment to the one that God has given you and a delight in the character of the person is what leads to long-lasting relationship. Remember Solomon's words to his own son in Proverbs chapter 5. He uses the same language. He says, son, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Why should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water out in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated in her love always. This is mature Christian love. It's a love that is satisfied for and long, satisfied in and longs for the one that God has given you. Solomon doesn't run off to the 140 other women. He doesn't stick around just because he finds his wife super attractive, though it seems that he does. Rather, mature Christian love is passionate, but not indiscriminately so. It's passionate about the one God has given to it, and it finds satisfaction within the bounds of covenant marriage. That brings us to our last point. Mature Christian love speaks permanently. In response to his love poem, in response to his expression of desire for his wife, to his uh, engagement with her after the conflict, she highlights the permanency and covenant nature of their love for one another. Look at verse 9b. We're in chapter 7 now, verse 9b and 10. He says that he desires once again to lay hold of her and to enjoy all that she has to give him. And she says, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over his lips. And then she ends with this language reminiscent of the previous chapter. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. There's covenant fidelity there. She speaks about the permanence of their relationship by saying, I am his. There's a two having become one flesh idea in view here. She uses this language because there's a long-range target in view. 
It's not the immediacy of makeup intimacy. We, we had a disagreement, and so now we get back into bed together, and everything's fine tomorrow. Rather, her commitment is for the long haul. She says, I am totally his, and he longs for me. It's a shame that the divorce rate at 25 years and 30 years and 40 years is almost the same as the divorce rate at two years or four years or five years, isn't it? It's because we live in a culture of instant gratification. And when we don't have exactly what we want now, we move on to the next thing. How many of you have done this before? You've been driving down New Garden Road or driving down Battleground, and you think, I'm getting kind of hungry. And there's a, a fast food joint right up the road. I, I, I'm, I'm confident that almost everybody here has had this experience at cookout at least once in your life. You drive by the shopping center over there where cookout is by Kohl's, and you see that the line is eight and a half miles long. And what do you do? I don't care how much you love cookout milkshakes. You can be as committed to cookout milkshakes as a person can be to milkshakes. You see an eight and a half mile long line there, you're going to McDonald's. You're not getting in that line and waiting because we've trained ourselves to move on. We're training our youth to move on by the way we teach them to date. And we're training ourselves to move on by turning the channel every time there's a commercial on, by going to the next drive through every time there's a long line, and by divorcing one another every time there's a conflict in marriage. And she says, no, 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 Christian love, mature Christian love is permanent. It recognizes the long view. It knows that objectively milkshake cookouts are the or cooked out milkshakes are the best. And so it waits in line for eight and a half miles, doesn't it? You understand my point. It's a sign that we don't value the permanence or the covenant or perhaps that our hyper-casual dating culture is having its obvious effects on marriage. But what we see here in this text is that mature Christian love is in it for the long haul. And it reminds one another, even in the midst of conflict, of the covenant that we share together. Well, there's so much here that reflects our relationship with Christ, isn't there? There are spiritual truths here that we can't simply pass over lightly. And let me just highlight two of them in conclusion. We know that when we have sinned royally and messed up big time, just like this Shulamite woman, that Jesus doesn't leave us, nor is he waiting in the garden to offer us a snarky comment or a cutting word in response to our sin. Jesus doesn't sit around prepping his talking, about, talking points about how we always do this or we never do that for him. Instead, Jesus is gentle and lowly, isn't he? Jesus is meek and mild. He doesn't break us when we're bruised. He doesn't extinguish our flame when it flickers. Instead, he feeds us with words of compassion. He heals us. He binds us up with his words of love. He's always waiting with wise words of love and compassion for repentant sinners. Is that how we approach each other in marriage in a Christ-like way? Or is our goal to win? Secondly, we know this about Jesus. His love for us is forever. It's permanent. He wants us to find all our satisfaction in him, and he himself, for some reason known only to the mind of God, is pleased to love us eternally, even when we keep sinning. 
doesn't bring you a lot of comfort to know that your Savior is not pining away after another every time you sin? Isn't it good to know that the author of covenant faithfulness is faithful to us as a husband is to his wife? That his faithfulness to us is more permanent than time itself. These are things that we know are true about Jesus. And they should be true about us and our relationships with one another, especially in marriage. I'm sure many of us have been the sinner in this story in the Song of Songs. We've injured the one we care most about and we've stressed out about how they'll respond. Do you see how wonderful it is, how Christ-like it is to receive forgiveness rather than frustration? Husbands, do you know that your wives need that response in the midst of conflict? To receive from you faithfulness and forgiveness rather than to hear your frustrations? Wives, do you know that about your husbands? Do you know that it's better to receive love rather than harshness from the one who's committed themselves to you for life? Husbands, do you know that about your wives in marriage? How much more you serve her by receiving her repentance with forgiveness and gentleness rather than harshness and firm correction? Wives, do you know how good that is for your husbands? Have you experienced the difference between receiving a warm embrace after sin rather than cold indifference or even hostility? Why do we store up wrath for each other when God has dealt with all of his wrath stored up for us in his son, Jesus Christ? Mature Christian love looks a lot like Christ's love for us, doesn't it? It's wise and patient and tender. It's comprehensive. It's passionate. And it's permanent. It lasts forever. We ought to aim to love like Christ does. Whether we're married people or not, these truths apply to all Christians in all conflict. And I'll leave you with this. I tell young couples in premarital counseling, I ask them to wrap their mind around this reality. I say, do you realize that the thing that's most essentially true about you two, even more than the fact that you're married, is the fact that you're brother and sister in Christ. What comes first in your relationship is your union with Christ. The fact that you are getting married is additional to that. But underneath that is the fact that you're united together as brother and sister in Christ, which means then that every single one another commandment in the Bible applies to you two in your home. Isn't that interesting? I wonder what our marriages would look like if we really tried not to exercise authority and submission so much, but to outdo one another in showing honor in all things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ's unending faithful love to us. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to be mature Christians in our conflicts, especially in our marriages, that we might bring glory to Jesus Christ and might be good for those around us as they observe our relationships, even in conflict, especially the way that we handle it. We ask, Lord, that you would grow us up in Jesus, that we might be more like him in every area of our lives. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.